0: From the studio of KPSU Portland in an association with the Department of History at Portland State University, this is Beyond Footnotes. Join us as we explore public, local, and world history through discussions with professors, authors, and fellow students.
1: Thank you for joining us. This is Beyond Footnotes. I'm Ryan Wisnor. And I'm Joshua Justice. The Archive. It brings to mind an image of a silent, windowless room, softly lit and closely guarded by a white-gloved archivist. Sternly but politely, they remind you that only pencils are allowed inside. Now, for historians, this nuanced environment is where they thrive. Some cross oceans to look at primary documents with the zeal of a treasure hunter.
0: Long before those files reached the archive, numerous hands created, cared for, and organized each document. But for many community groups, social justice organizations and activists, the immediate needs tied to their struggles may deprioritize document preservation. This creates a challenge for historians of social movements who try to piece together the historical record and understand the contributions made by everyday people.
1: Scholars and community members are beginning to broaden the historical understanding of Portland's civil rights movement by researching the personal collection of Verdell Burdine and Otto G. Rutherford. The collection is housed at Portland State University, and it documents 100 years of African-American community life and culture in Oregon from the 1880s to the 1980s.
0: In this episode of Beyond Footnotes, we interview a historian whose research into the Burdine and Rutherford collection is leading her to shed greater light on the contributions women made to the local struggle for civil rights. Our guest today is Melissa Lang, the current Oregon Women's History Consortium Fellow.
1: Melissa is completing her master's at Portland State University and her work focuses on women's organization and activism for civil rights in Portland. We'll ask her about the research she's conducting in local archives and about how women's clubs acted as a vehicle for community organizing and social change.
0: Melissa is also the current Secretary of Portland and Portland's NAACP Executive Committee and the programs coordinator for the local nonprofit Know Your City, where she coordinates events that utilize art and local history to engage and empower communities within Portland. She'll share with us her insight on how her training as a public historian informs her work at the NAACP in Know Your City. Welcome Melissa, thanks for joining us.
2: Hello.
1: So, Melissa, uh, maybe you can begin by telling us a little bit more regarding um, how the West Coast Civil Rights Movement, maybe particularly in Portland, differs from maybe the Civil Rights Movement that folks um, experienced in the South or the
2: Northeast. Yeah, so the Civil Rights Movement in the West was different in that the black communities that were established here, particularly in Portland, So besides the West, but here in Portland, you know, we're established in a state that excluded them to begin with. And so Portland had a very small black community. um, And that, I think, dramatically affected the civil rights movement here in terms of how they organized and their successes in that.
0: How has this historiography previously been looked at in the West, uh, the West Coast Civil Rights Movement. So maybe, maybe if you could start by telling us what time period you're researching.
2: Well, my thesis primarily focuses on the post-war years. So anything from 1945 to 1960, um, which is also sort of considered the classical period of the Civil Rights Movement. Um, but in order to do that, I am also examining um, the prior generation of social activists in the movement in terms of the progressive era. So in terms of the historiography, there's not a lot on women in Oregon in the civil rights movement. There's been you know, a book and some articles about Beatrice Kennedy, which are really great, and some other articles, but really they're kind of left out of the narrative of how civil rights occurred in Oregon.
1: So, what are some of the organizations? I, I, the, after reading some of your the the seminar papers that you produced, I got, I got a little bit of an introduction that there were a number of organizations and community groups that already existed that women found their their the way to um, to uh, to engage with the civil rights movement. What were some of those?
2: Yeah. So um, m- many of the women who worked for the civil rights movement in Oregon. We're also part of what was called the Oregon Association of Colored Women's Clubs, which was started in uh, the same year as actually the NAACP in 1914 in Oregon. And uh, that group was a branch of the National Association of Colored Women's Clubs and... Basically the idea is that it consolidated many small clubs made up of about, you know, as little as five and then to 10, 15 uh, women. And the clubs all sort of had their own missions, whether it was uh, the Culture Club, uh, the Harriet Tubman Club, the uh, Kwanzen Club, um, the Altruista Club. And they found greater power in being able to sort of coalesce under an organ branch, and then there was a regional branch, And then that all kind of came under the national branch. So it gave these women the opportunity to do direct local work at the same time in conversation with the national movement and women nationally.
1: Hmm. Were these clubs, um, I guess, based, uh, you mentioned part of them were based on interest, um, different Different. Missions, but were they maybe also based on neighborhood or faith or community? Or?
2: No, I don't. They weren't based on neighborhood. I mean, in the period that I'm looking at, most of the women who belonged to these clubs uh, lived in Northeast Portland, which, you know, that fact—the redlining in Portland specifically, right—segregating African Americans to one neighborhood at the same time galvanized the community and made it strong. And it, and I think it's a really pivotal factor of the civil rights movement's success here in Portland. Um, But it also raises a lot of questions um, in terms of, you know, one of these things, that uh, projects that the women were really interested in was letter writing. And they would write letters to, um, if they found out that somebody was sick in the neighborhood, if they found out that somebody had just had a baby, if they found out that somebody had lost a parent, um, and, and these could be complete strangers. They would create a budget and write letters from themselves, from the, or, from the club, and mail it out. And the odd thing is, is that often these places where these letters were mailed to were just down the street. And at the same time, in many of the meeting minutes, the women talk about how hard it is to budget for these letters, um, particularly during the wartime they're really struggling to pay for the stamps to send these letters and at the same time, you know they could have communicated in different ways, so like they really saw the significance in letter writing, and I haven't quite teased that out or figured that out
0: so you mentioned uh, utilizing those meetings as a, as a source when you're looking at this sort of um, I guess you could call it everyday activism the, the letter writing campaigns, that sort of thing. From looking at those meeting minutes, could you describe for us what a typical meeting would be like?
2: Yeah, so, well, I can Describe for you what a typical um, meeting minute was like, not necessarily um, a meeting. You know, if you're involved at all with any um, social justice work, you you probably know that what's written down on the page and recorded is quite different from what actually occurred in your meeting. Sure. The nice thing about the uh, club women's meeting minutes is that they're... Are some sort of personality beyond sort of Robert's rules, and in, in what I mean by that is they always noted that there was you know an hour long tea before the meeting, and they would take roll call, and then there would usually be followed by an emphasis on how important it is to show up. So I take from that that many women weren't present, <laughs> um, and uh, then there was sort of you know usually statements about you know don't forget to you know pay your dues, and then different women would you know, report on whatever project they were leading. And then there was always a list of the letters that were written that month to to who and why, and then um, how many stamps needed to be bought and that sort of thing. And then there was, you know, some meeting minutes ended there. Some meeting uh, minutes were, are really powerful. For example, I believe it was in 1957, though it's been a while since I've looked at it, but in 1957, the uh, organization had decided to take out the word "colored" from their organization's title, and they, you know, saw it as not in line with their mission of interracial integration. And so, even though the power of these groups, which is you know, creating a space for black women to exercise their political agency. At the same time, they were willing to sort of give that up in the name of justice. And then, you know, a, a, an example of the personality that comes out in these notes at the at the end of that um, meeting minute, that very sort of committee language, it says something like, so-and-so uh, motions to leave the room and have a cigarette, so-and-so seconds motion, motion passed, you know, so it's like, yeah. <laughs> there's some really incredible stuff in the, in the notes that, you know, I'm usually grinning and bothering, uh, Chris Pastchild, you know, showing her, like, the cool stuff that I'm finding, so.
0: Oh, I want to back up just a little bit here. You mentioned tea having a place at these meetings, mm-hmm. and I know there is some relevance in the women's suffrage movement um, with tea. Is is there any relevance or significance uh, in these meetings?
2: I think it's the same. I think it's the same significance. I think it's women sort of, I don't want to say playing into, you know, women resembling, you know, gendered expectations of what it means to be a good woman and a good female citizen. And and somehow that's represented with tea. Uh, there's probably an American historian out there who could explain that, but it's connected. I mean, they're definitely playing, they're definitely walking the color line, right? They're definitely playing into the expectations of good citizenship, but they're also, you know, trying to represent themselves as model citizens in that they are dressed well, they are, they are sophisticated, they are educated. And most importantly um, to these women in this generation is that they are promoting interracial relations. They are always emphasizing that the path to progress is through better relations between the races.
1: Would you say that the, that mission, that in, the improvement in better relations or interracial relations, the promotion of better interracial relations... Do you think that did that shift over time? Because, like you mentioned, this the the Oregon Association of uh, Colored Women's Clubs started in 1914 and it lasted for in, decades.
2: It's still, it's still, it's St- still, yeah. still you can still join the Harriet Tubman Club.
1: So, how has that mission changed, or how did their how how have you seen through these minutes the maybe the rhetoric or their the solutions that they're looking for change with different generations of women?
2: Yeah. Okay. So, I don't actually see a large shift within the Oregon Association of Colored Women's Clubs. What I do see is a is a shift in the 60s with, you know, the rise of women's liberation movement, black nationalism and just, you know, the counterculture movement in general women, young women in particular, not wanting to join these organizations. They're seen as sort of their mother's organizations. Um, And they're seen as too polite and not urgent enough in terms of fighting for justice. And so, you know, a lot of the more radical women in the 60s did not emphasize interracial relations. They sort of began to take this stand about... You, you know, you can be with us or without us, it doesn't matter, we're, we're going to uh, start our own revolution. While, you know, their mother's generation and the mothers before them were very, very much saw, you know, better relations with white folks closely tied to the success of justice. Um, you know, Beatrice Kennedy, who was an uh, activist in the progressive era and uh, editor of The Advocate, you know, she directly said, you know, it dawned on me one day that maybe racism exists because uh, white people don't know me, white people don't know that I'm a good citizen, white people don't know that I have the same interests and dreams, and white people don't know, you know, our history and who we are. And so she very much saw her mission as teaching white people about black people and that that can, you know, bridge this rift that was creating violence and oppression and, yeah.
0: With the OAWC um, and the National Association, was there any particular outlook or theory that you think unified all of them? I, you just, you're sort of were just touching on that. But I guess maybe looking at the perspectives of uh, Du Bois, Washington, Garvey, do you think any of that had an influence on them?
2: Yeah, so definitely. So beyond inter- interracial relations, the National Association, and then therefore the regional branches and the state branches, and then the cl- individual clubs themselves, I mean, their whole mission was, you know, sort of following suit to Du Bois's, uh, you know, sort of theory of the talented 10th, that there has been a percentage of the black population who have found success and they can use their privilege to uplift the black community with, with also a sense of urgency about justice, which, right, differs from sort of Washington and Garvey. And you see that in Kennedy's work through The Advocate, You see that through just individuals among the black community, you know, writing into the newspaper, you know, always emphasizing that, you know, us folks who are better off need to be examples for, for, uh, you know, the poor black community. Um, And in that way, the Oregon Association, you know, was in conversation with the national movement
1: the uplifting work that the, the club's mission was um, and touching back. We kind of going back to that, that concept of the everyday activism and the, the community letter writing really stands out to me. as yeah. just like, an amazing aspect of maintaining communication, yeah. maintaining contact, and uh, within the community, holding that structure together, which um, may be overlooked. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm wondering what what are some of the other things that may be overlooked that these clubs have done that really sustained the community, and maybe prepared them for the next struggle in the, the 50s yeah. and the 60s. Could you speak to some of those?
2: Yeah. So there's a lot of different things. So there's healthcare. There's education. There's social services in terms of From, you know, if someone was sick, they would go over to their house and clean their house to, you know, neighborhood beautification, right? So that played like a double role of, well, one, you know, creating a better or more beautiful neighborhood, you know, will will be better for the children at the same time, show the white community that, you know, they're good citizens. And, And this is, you know, going on when, you know, black neighborhoods were being divested from, right? So it was all up to them to sort of fight for money from the city for, you know, city lights, trees, trash cans, things like that. You know, Dawson Park is a perfect example of that if, if, you, if you ever drive along um, uh, Williams Avenue. And, you know, so with health care, it was so varied. So from supporting um, the only black doctor in Portland with sort of packages for women who were having a baby or they would help, um, Dr. Unthink, deliver the babies in terms of providing blankets and pillowcases and water, um, you know, things that, you know, the white community had through hospitals, but the black community were excluded from, to doing door-to-door surveys about different tests that you could take for your health care or shots, um, and then to, you know, planning, f- family planning, right, so um, access to Contraception, and then access to, you know, being aware about breast cancer and, yeah.
1: Interesting. And you mentioned education as well, um, and I understand the scholarship was kind of like a major component yeah. of that. Can you yeah. talk to a little bit about the scholarship?
2: Yeah, so they started the Catherine Gray Scholarship, I, I want to say in the 20s, and Catherine Gray was the first president of the Oregon Association, and the Catherine Gray Scholarship was, uh, I mean, it was their pinnacle... Project all of the clubs uh, donated money to it all of the clubs specifically raised or raised money specifically for um, that scholarship and the women were you know the sort of stewards of Negro History Week at that time and They would use the money raised from Negro History Week for the scholarship So those things were closely tied and seen as sort of like their pinnacle yearly achievement and they um, yeah, I mean they, they they always celebrated not only the student chosen that year, but past winners. They would mention, you know, where past winners had gone to school. And, yeah, and it was seen as, again, their way of, you know, lifting as we climb, which was their motto, right? So we're, we have a little more privilege. We're going to raise some money and um, uh, support, you know, a black student in the neighborhood.
1: And the lifting as we, as we climb. Part of that was also that the scholarships were, were they designated specifically for women, or
2: it was it was more like um, best case scenario, uh, African American female; second best case scenario, African American male; and then anyone. But I, I I I I think it always went to an African American student. But I I could be wrong on that. Well, you've
0: been talking about a lot of the important work these clubs were doing in the realm of racial justice in it seems like the women involved in these clubs sort of were walking this line where, on one hand, they're conforming to gender norms, the T-socials, for example, uh, but then rejecting them by taking such a prominent role in this activism. Could you maybe speak a little bit to this uh, dichotomy between yeah. those two?
2: Yeah, so they were definitely, you know, exercising both of those. So, as I, as yeah, as we talked about, they were definitely, you know, conforming to sort of, like, Expectations of womanhood, you know, especially for African American women, you you know, their, you know, gender norm left room for leadership, left room for activism, left room for being political, Um, and this sort of can stem back to, you know, slave culture um, in terms of women really being, sort of the the keepers of culture, um, because of the way that communities were moved and oppressed, but at the same time. You know, if you, look, if you look at a picture of the uh, passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Bill in Washington, D.C., the national federal bill, it's a room full of men. There's about three black guys, two, two folks, you can't even see their faces, and then Martin Luther King. If you look at the photograph of the passage of the Oregon Civil Rights Bill, I think, I want to say it's seven or eight people, and three of them are women. And so they, they were 100% at the forefront of this... Fight. At the same time, you can see places where the husband's role was maybe elevated, which I think was um, typical in society in general, and times where, I mean, if you look through the records of the NAACP, more often than not, more members were women, and there was always females in the leadership from the origins. I mean, Beatrice Kennedy was the first um, vice president for the Oregon chapter. They definitely... We're overtly political and activist, yet we're fulfilling this idea of, you know, true American womanhood in society of that day.
1: I think one of the the things that stands out to me, which we mentioned a little bit in our intro, is just the role of document preservation. I mean, like, how important... Um, that is for us as historians to understand the past, but much of what you 've been looking at has was saved by Verdell Burdine. and like i 'm wondering if you could talk about that like that role, yeah. role in preserving this history so that these voices can be uplifted in, in, in the future
2: yeah, so because you know the women were sort of the stewards of Negro History Week in Portland, you know they were the keepers of these Papers And they were often the secretaries of NAACP, Urban League, um, and then obviously certainly the women's clubs. Um, So these papers would fall into their hands and they would keep them. and, And this was very important to Verdell. I mean, this was, in a way, her legacy, right? And, and you know, the Rutherfords themselves and the black community in general had, you know, had experienced a great loss in records when they were loaned to the Oregon Historical Society and lost, not returned. And, and so it was important to Verdell that the papers not go there. Now I want to point out, you know, the Oregon Historical Society isn't the same Oregon Historical Society back then, um, but it was still important to Verdell to not have the papers end up there. And, and it was, I think, you know, it, it found a really great home at PSU, you know, because of community connections with, you know, Dr. Milner and Charlotte Rutherford herself, Patricia Schechter and Chris Passchild and uh, Carmen Thompson and that, you know, if, if you think about it the pre- the preservation of these documents about women were w- was, was handled by women the entire time to thinking about how, you know, it was Patricia Schechter and Charlotte Rutherford and the other women I mentioned were the folks who brought these papers to PSU collected them and made a decision to keep everything, right? And that sort of Process might not have happened if it wasn't w- women valuing women's objects and the importance of a letter to someone who is sick or a thank you note. That's you know that's something that might not have been processed mm-hmm. at um, traditional institutions. Mm-hmm.
0: Moving a little bit to your current work um, with Know Your City, you're so you know as we mentioned at the top of the show, you're the program coordinator there in maybe you could tell us for those who don't already know what is know your city and what do you, what do they do for the community?
2: Yeah. So know your city is a local nonprofit that, you know, we seek to sort of combine art and heritage to engage Portlanders and visitors to Portland about our community, whether it's politics, social justice, you know, multicultural history. we do this through comic books we do it through walking tours, forums. We also have educational programs with Portland Public Schools, uh, like the Jade Journal. We have digital history programs. And, yeah, and I highly recommend any, you know, Portland State University student who wants to get involved to come by our offices and uh, check us out. There's lots of opportunities for folks.
1: Yeah. I mean, Know Your City, um, for folks in Portland, uh, I think people have been following it a lot. They, they love the, the work. Know Your City does. Um, for folks who may be listening who may be not familiar, I mean, wh- what do you think makes Know Your City unique, or why is it uh, like why has it been so popular? Compared yeah. to? I mean, it's it's not just any other historicalist yeah. group or tour. Yeah. So. so,
2: I think what it brings to the table is art. Mm. And it doesn't put history in this box of academics write history, they agree upon whether it's correct, and then it uh, gets sent to the basement, right? Mm. It's no, let's make it accessible to everybody by using art to express you know, what is at the root of this story.
1: You also have another hat that you wear. <laughs> yeah. um, you are currently the the, tre- the secretary treasurer of the executive board for the NAACP. Is that correct? Just the secretary. It's just the secretary. Yeah. So, so maybe uh, how does your history work, what you've done researching, kind of inform your role as the treasurer?
2: Mm-hmm. treasurer. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it informs it a lot. You know, I will never, ever be able to comprehend the amount of work that Verdell put in, to social justice when she was alive, right? She, she was a mother. She was a wife. She was a secretary to Dr. Unthink. She was secretary for many years at uh, NAACP, and if she wasn't secretary, she was doing a lot of the secretarial work. The um, mimeograph machine was in her basement. She was very active in the Oregon's Women's Club, uh, like, just involved in so many ways. But by just this one small role that I'm doing at NAACP, and the volume of work that it takes, um, it's phenomenal. So I get this tiny glimpse into what that was like. I get this tiny glimpse into how it's difficult to, you know, navigate politics. But I think more importantly, besides just my work as a historian, I, it's given me this opportunity to, you know, meet and be mentored by really incredible social justice movers, you know, particularly uh, Joan Hardesty, the president, and Cynthia Harris, and, you know, Brian Ng, and just these folks who put in so much of their time volunteering has been just really incredibly inspiring and has put me on a completely different path for my life.
1: Mm-hmm do you really do you hand. handle the documents with a different sense knowing that maybe one day like a historian yeah, will be looking
2: at them yeah so <laughs> so um, you know we're I'm, i take the meeting minutes and i'm supposed to just sort of talk about who you know who 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 showed up what uh, measures were voted on were they did they pass or not and then any sort of financial stuff but i'm compelled to write notes about what was discussed mm. and and the nuances of these conversations, you know, and I'm often told, like, no, we need to keep it simple. And, I, and I'm thinking, no, we need to, this needs to be preserved. Like, there's, you know, we need we need to offer documents for historians to have an understanding of the work that they do today.
0: Interesting. It seems like your current work has sort of shifted into the, the sort of roles that you've researched in the past. Yeah. Um, and so, I guess... You know, sort of along those, those same lines, how do you see, you know, the future of these organizations being preserved, you know, outside of what you're doing with the, the meeting minutes? Like, do you see that somebody sort of uh, like Verdell in, in the organization now who's taking, taking steps to preserve a lot of this information for future archives?
2: Yeah, so it's different now, right, because we have a thing called Google Drive. Right, <laughs> um,
0: we're familiar. Yeah,
2: and so uh, how that will affect how historians work, I don't know. Right? Yeah. Will will our Google Google Drive survive? Do we want our Google Drive to survive? Oh, um, and we and we you know discuss these things at our meetings in terms of access, but then also sustainability. How do we preserve documents so that if if I leave without much notice, can somebody easily fulfill that role? Mm-hmm.
0: I think that's something that um, as historians, a lot of us think about how can we make it so that the work we're doing doesn't end with us and that other people can can access it. I mean, especially. But how does
2: that affect like the 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 documents you're creating? Right. It's like uh, Adams and Jefferson, you know, writing for posterity. It's kind of awkward. And yeah.
0: Well, I really appreciate you coming down today. It's been a great conversation, and uh, it's, it's been a real pleasure having
1: you on the show, Melissa.
0: Thank
2: you.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. I feel like I learned a lot about Portland history. Cool.
0: Beyond Footnotes, sponsored by the PSU Department of History, and was recorded in the studios of KPSU. Music in this episode from the Sharpshooters and Love Apple.
1: Joshua and I want to thank everyone who's been listening to the show this year uh, and want to welcome everyone to the start of our spring season. We post new episodes every other week, and we hope you keep listening. And if you want to help us out even more, please tell your friends about the show. And you can listen to all of our past uh, shows on iTunes and stay up to date about upcoming episodes on Facebook and Twitter. So uh, check out Beyond Footnotes on iTunes or on SoundCloud or kpsu.org, where you'll find our blog So, signing off, I'm Ryan Wisnor and I'm Joshua Justice. Thanks for listening.